50 days into the war in Gaza, our focus this week is the propaganda at play. Israel should have the upper hand, but doesn't, and it shows. The death toll amongst journalists covering this story is unprecedented, 53 and counting. The UN special rapporteur, who has issues with the way this conflict is being reported. A temporary ceasefire finally came into effect this past week, pausing Israel's onslaught on the Gaza Strip for four days while hostages taken by Hamas were exchanged for Palestinian prisoners. The information war, however, continues, and like the battlefield, this fight is a mismatch. Given the media tools that Israel has at its disposal and the largely uncritical treatment that it gets from international news outlets. And yet Hamas has been more than holding its own, producing a different kind of propaganda, often diminished or dismissed by Western media, but which resonates in the Arab world and with more and more people in the global south. The Israeli government clearly realizes that international opinion is turning against it. It has tried to make this story all about the horrors of October 7th, rather than what came before and what has happened since. Because, asymmetry aside, decades of occupation and apartheid, followed by a war of vengeance that has killed so many Palestinian civilians, are proving to be a tough sell. 48 days of bloodshed later, a truce lasting 96 hours between Israel and Hamas has come into effect, giving Gazans some room to breathe temporarily. The first pause in the fighting since October 7th, clearing the way for a hostage swap and the delivery of humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip. In the information war, however, there is no ceasefire in sight. The Israeli military has been cramming online spaces full of spin. Claims of Hamas command centers beneath hospitals. This room is an operational room that has communication with And a copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf supposedly, randomly, found in some Palestinians' home. Hamas has been producing its own propaganda. Some of it looks like it's out of a video game featuring the daredevil tactics of its fighters, punctuated with monologues from Hamas spokesmen. The two sides have produced a barrage of competing claims, purported accomplishments on the battlefield, and ultimately, narratives. The battle for public opinion in this conflict is greater than normal. The amount of international engagement here is disproportionate even to the size of the conflict. And both parties are very keen on getting their message across. We know, for example, that Israel has within its military a division whose sole job it is to monitor social media. At the same time, there's also a lot of propaganda on the Palestinian side. When it comes to Hamas, um, its message is defending itself for uh, some of the actions in October 7th, but at the same time legitimating its resistance to the occupation and settler colonialism that exists in Palestine. And its message is coming across in the Arab world and Palestinian society very powerfully. Israel would never admit defeat in an information war, but its actions suggest this one is not going its way. 
This past week at the UN, Israeli diplomats played a 47-minute-long film called Bearing Witness on the attacks on October 7th, the atrocities committed on that day, which included footage from Hamas's own cameras. The video is more than six weeks old, but the Israeli government knows that its disproportionate, inhumane bombing of Gaza since has swung global public opinion against it, that there is no way to defend the killing of more than 5,000 Palestinian children. So it's best to roll back the clock, rewind the tape, and make the story about October 7th and Hamas. It's important for Israel to reiterate and demonstrate the brutality of Hamas's attack for several reasons. One of them is that there are still a large number of people who don't fully believe that Hamas deliberately killed civilians on October 7th. And by displaying this footage, it builds the legitimacy of the case. But there is another objective. Hamas's actions on October 7th were different to its other actions in the past. This was something more sadistic, something more theatrical in the way that the violence was conducted and broadcast to the world. And broadcasting these videos, showing them to the world, is part of building the legitimacy of that argument. When it was first aired to uh, journalists in Israel, people left the room and, and they were sick because it's incredibly graphic and it's, it's horrifying. But despite the fact that Israel has this ability and it has all of this sophisticated social media and propaganda. It does look like they're losing this war, and it's the reason why Israel is having to show over and over the 47 minutes of uh, horrific uh, documentary content. The Israelis have this problem that they're being perceived um, rightly as engaging in brutal disproportionality and killing large numbers of civilians. It is a war of vengeance. And Prime Minister Netanyahu has said this on several occasions. When Netanyahu admits that this is a war of vengeance, he's giving the game away. Another mistake in messaging, much like Hamas's mistake of claiming they didn't kill any civilians. Prior to Friday's ceasefire, both Hamas and Israel were posting combat videos. When that content finds its way onto international news outlets, the Israeli videos are usually treated as information, whereas Hamas's content, due to its status as a terrorist organization, gets labeled as propaganda. These are Hamas propaganda videos from the perspective of its fighters. One Hamas voice you will rarely, if ever, hear in Western media coverage is its military spokesman, Abu Obeda, an anonymous presence with a reputation for defiance through messaging that often includes a call to arms. He has developed a huge following among Arabic speakers. Most of Hamas's social media output was on the messaging app Telegram, but its account there is now banned. Still, the videos it posts get shared by its supporters and affiliates on Telegram and other platforms. From there, it makes its way onto Arab news outlets. For the Arab world, Hamas presents 
a, a hope for liberation. It's a national movement. It's legitimate. There is a willing ear to hear those who are doing the fighting in the Arab world. The other important component of Abu Ubaidah that he's generally covered with what we call al-fam in Arabic, the Palestinian uh, scarf, that actually highlights the importance of voice instead of the image of the face itself. It makes it a collective voice of resistance. He is a masked figure, uh, almost a Rorschach test, onto whom viewers can project their own desires, their own expectations. Someone who, in his anonymity, represents whatever you want that movement to be. Hamas is also adapting, like all organizations, to the modern age of digital journalism. You have a figure here who appears to be charismatic, to be dynamic, energetic, and I think to a degree that explains why people would prefer to listen to him than a spokesman sitting in a suit at a podium who may have been around for 50 years with nothing to show for it. Hamas and its allies have been very, very good at combining the nationalism, the Islamic commitment and the revolutionary ethos and charisma. A lot of those speeches are not really aimed at the West. They're not really aimed at the United States or, or Europe. They're aimed at the Arabs and the Muslims, and they've been medium effective. They've had a certain flair for those who identify with the concept of resistance. Warfare does not get much more asymmetrical than the kind Israel is waging on Gaza. A nuclear power bankrolled by American funding, pulverizing 2.3 million people locked in an open-air prison. Israel is also far better equipped to fight an information war. It has a military unit that specializes in psychological warfare and a formidable presence on social media. There are dozens of Israeli news outlets compared to the one news network Hamas controls, Al-Quds, which broadcasts in Arabic. However, the most persuasive case being made on behalf of Palestinians in Gaza is not coming from Hamas. It is the impact that Gazan journalists have had under the most dangerous conditions imaginable, exposing the horrors of Israeli bombardment. Their work keeps going viral, traveling the world. And it is a primary reason why, in the battle for hearts and minds, Israel has been taking a beating. The information war is far less asymmetric than the military campaign. The scenes coming out of Gaza are placing enormous pressure on Israel. And if you look at other parts of the world, particularly the global south, South Asia, India, China, Latin America, global and regional television stations and newspapers in those parts of the world, it is the Palestinian message that I think is more widespread, more compelling to local audiences than the Israeli message. And I think that is a source of real concern to the Israeli government. We are witnessing the rise of an anti-war movement across the globe. New people are learning about the Palestinian struggle, the horrific reality of Palestinians and how they live. I don't think, for now, Hamas is interested in engaging with mainstream media or in spreading its messages in the Western world. The Arab world sees in the Palestinian fighter a hero. They see a hope for the end of the occupation, and that's why it resonates deeply.
This past week has been one of the most devastating for journalists in Gaza. That in a war that's already been described as the deadliest period on record for the news media. Minakshi Ravi is here with the details. Richard, the toll on journalists during the war in Gaza has been like nothing we've seen in decades. That is according to groups like CPJ, the Committee to Protect Journalists, and Reporters Without Borders, known as RSF. The CPJ described October as the deadliest month on record for journalists since the organization began tracking stats back in 1992. And that was before at least 11 journalists were killed in Gaza in the span of the past 10 days including Belal Jadallah, who ran a media training and press freedom organization called Press House Palestine. He was reportedly struck by tank fire as he attempted to flee the Israeli ground advance into Gaza City. This happened just a day after two other journalists, cameraman Hasuna Salim and reporter Sari Mansoor, working for the Hamas-affiliated news network Quds TV, were killed in an airstrike. Numerous journalists, including Al Jazeera's own, have received direct threats from the Israeli army. Israel has threatened Al Jazeera's correspondent in Gaza, Yumna al-Said, uh, telling her and her family to leave their home or risk being killed. Along the Israeli-Lebanese border, where fighting has persisted since the early days of the conflict, reporter Farah Omar and cameraman Rabi al-Mamari for the Hezbollah-affiliated TV news channel Al-Mayadeen were killed in an airstrike. Israel said it was destroying terror cells along the border, but both the Lebanese government and Al-Mayadeen TV say journalists are being deliberately targeted. The total number of media professionals killed so far in this war now stands at 53. 46 Palestinians, 4 Israelis and 3 Lebanese. The ceasefire will have temporarily stopped these numbers rising, but it is only scheduled to last for four days. As RSF has said, journalism is being eradicated in the Gaza Strip as a result of Israel's refusal to heed calls to protect media personnel. Thanks, Mina. In recent weeks, there has been an alarmingly small number of official voices calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. One exception has been Francesca Albanese. An Italian trained in international law, she is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the occupied Palestinian territories, and she's been vocal in one interview after another on the need for journalists to remember the context in this story and what international law says about the rights and responsibilities of the occupier and the occupied. Long before October 7th, Albanese was the target of smear campaigns and calls for her dismissal from the UN. Not one for being silenced, she has gone in the other direction, chastising the UN for its inaction. And Albanese has implored the media to do better, telling journalists they have a lot of homework to do. The necessity of reclaiming a more humane narrative is categorically imperative both to protect... Francesca Albanese joins us now. Ms. Albanese, you've been on a media blitz ever since October 7th. You are no stranger to the sensitivities around this story. But tell us about some of your interactions with reporters and editors since that day, the assumptions that journalists have on this story. What's it been like for you? Uh, hi, Richard. Uh, it's uneven because I have to say that there are there have been a few journalists who have really tried to do a um, good job, good coverage, asking me sort of neutral questions to appreciate the facts. But mostly I've had um, a difficult experience with uh, mainstream media in the West because I found 
I found myself in the uncomfortable position of being challenged on how I would call things or how I would report on things. No, it's not a trope. It's really real. So it seems not to understand what I'm saying. There is an apartheid regime. No, I'm serious. There is an apartheid regime. It's domination. This is not a trope. This is international law. I mean, it was not my intention to, to challenge journalists, but it seems that they really wanted to... To, to, to challenge my way of looking at things, which I found disturbing. Because again, excuse me, but I'm, I'm here to report on, on things that I've analyzed, verified, triangulated, and yeah, <laughs> I found it a bit surprising. That relates to something that you've said about today's political landscape. You say it's marked by historical amnesia, traditional media plays a critical role in that and that many people are living in an alternative reality. What do you mean exactly by that? Yes, yes, Richard, because this is not just a conflict, and calling, calling it just a conflict is a, is a misnomer, because this is an occupation that has been ongoing for 56 years. So very limited uh, consideration for that, but also very limited consideration for the enduring trauma that also the Palestinians have in themselves, because um, while there is recognition for the, the, the tragedy that the Jewish people have lived through and through across centuries that culminated in the horror of the Holocaust, there is very little recognition of what the Palestinians has en had endured as a people since 1947. Since the, and, and through the creation of the State of Israel. They were never allowed to come to a closure. And again, this is not about Hamas. This is really the Palestinian as a people, as they try to resist a violent occupation in the occupied Palestinian territory. There is no Hamas military presence in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, and still over 200 people have been killed by soldiers, and armed settlers. Do you see any connection to it in, uh, in mainstream media? I don't think that there is a fair, objective and impartial representation of the relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And the Palestinians are the ones who are blamed and smeared, including when they try to protest in Western Europe or to be in solidarity with, uh, with the Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territory. Palestinians have heard the calls, as we have, from Israeli officials and voices in the Israeli media for what amounts to ethnic cleansing of Gaza. As a lawyer, are you surprised by the evidence that they are willingly providing of what appears to be the intent to commit what are, in fact, war crimes? There seems to be this sense of impunity over their words. It's surprising, yes, because the Israelis have never been so explicit in admitting responsibility for specific incidents. One of the things that were absolutely shocking was the, the bombing of the Jabalia refugee camp. Because the Israeli army knew that there were about 400 civilians, Palestinian civilians, including hostages. And nonetheless, the camp was bombed heavily and hundreds of Palestinians were killed, hundreds were injured, and a number of hostages was reportedly killed in that case. So, yeah, they've been quite outspoken about their intention, including calling for the erasure of Gaza, the flattening of Gaza. I think there's a big 
אחרי שבעזרת השם ובעזרת צה"ל גם את חאן יונס נהפוך למגרש כדורגל. is the kind of denial, and this is the, what I call the alternative reality that people live in, in the West. There are almost 15,000 who have been reportedly killed, and, and, and in politicians in the West are still debating whether a, a permanent ceasefire should take place or not. So, yeah, this I find very surprising. We have seen before what happens to people when... This, this fury becomes, uh, becomes popular. And this genocidal call that we have heard from politicians and, and military leaders in Israel is also amplified in various groups in the Israeli society. <laughs> so in the face of this madness, as someone who has seen genocidal horror happening in other parts of the world, I say it's clear that this, has, this has, is taking the Israeli society to a very dark place. And this is why I say in the interest of the Palestine, both Palestinians and the Israelis, this must be stopped. You've faced a lot of criticism um, for some of the things that you've said, and you faced some of that criticism prior to October 7th. Some cases you've been defamed. Pressure groups have been on your case to resign. What kind of things are they saying about you? Are they succeeding, Ms. Albanese, in making your job more difficult? Look, these groups, and they, I mean, they're all connected one way or another because they say exactly the same things that are repeated exactly in the same way, sometimes, sometimes in the same sequence, over and over. And the accusations against me are that I'm an anti-Semite, that I am pro-Hamas, and I support terrorism. Francesca Albanese is someone who pretends to be neutral. Uh, neither her position nor her own background have anything to do with impartiality. I mean, these are false allegations that gives enough uh, to me to take legal action. And it has also happened to my predecessors. Is it succeeding? I don't think so, because eventually more and more people keep on asking me to, to speak and to speak out. Wherever I go, uh, speaking to governments or speaking to the media, off record, people know. People tell me or let me understand that the situation is better known than it would seem in the public debate. But there is a lot of censorship and self-censorship because people don't want to be confronted with the allegations I, I have to face on a daily basis, which in my case don't distract me. I keep focused on what I have to do. But I think that it's necessary to tackle this issue at the global level because it's, uh, it's now also the weaponization of anti-Semitism and the level of smear against anyone who utters a word of criticism against Israel. And everyone who utters a word of solidarity with the Palestinians face such a huge and evil um, campaign. I mean, I also spoke with, you know, human rights defenders in the Pacific Islands, where they say, well, you, we face even arrest and detention if we uh, come out and protest in solidarity with the Palestinian people against what's happening in the Gaza Strip. So there is a crushing of freedom of assembly, a crushing of freedom of expression and of the right to protest 
that it's absolutely unprecedented at this global level and of this scale. Francesca Albanese, UN Special Rapporteur for the Occupied Palestinian Territories. You're up against it. Uh, we understand you're very busy. We're very grateful for the time that you've made for us today. Thank you, Richard. You've been watching yet another full edition of The Listening Post on the war on Gaza, our seventh straight. In 17 years of doing this program, monitoring the global media, we have never devoted so much coverage to a single story. We make no apologies for that. Given the awful attacks of October 7th, the war crimes that have taken place since and that will presumably resume once this temporary ceasefire ends, we will continue to provide wall-to-wall -wall coverage of this story as we would for any case of genocide unfolding before us. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.